Thank you. Morning. Right, okay. Are we all ready? Good. Well, two people are. I'm going to start anyway. <clears throat> um, as a leadership team, we went to Aitahad a couple of weekends ago. And um, one, while we were there, one of the guys that we invited to, uh, to import mentioned in passing Hosea chapter 2. And something just prompted me to turn to that. And as I read it, I knew, and I said it that weekend, that I felt that I had to preach from that chapter today. Um, so I'm afraid if you've come expecting to hear something about Palm Sunday, it's not directly linked. But please do stay. Um, at times it may not be the easiest sermon to hear. Um, and incidentally, did you know that one definition of sermon is long, tedious speech? So let's hope that that's not prophetic. So Hosea was a prophet, lived about 700 BC, and he was a citizen in the northern kingdom. Israel, kingdom of Israel had split north and south. He was contemporary of Isaiah, who lived down south in Jerusalem. And Hosea lived in turbulent times. During his career, during his prophetic career, Israel had six kings in just over 20 years. We've had our queen now for, what is it, 65 years plus, thereabouts. They'd gone through six kings in just over 20. Four of them have been assassinated by the predecessors. There's rumours about Charles, but we won't go there. So Israel was a politically unstable place at this time. But that wasn't the, the main problem that they faced. The main problem they faced was spiritual. Israel was running around on God. Israel was committing adultery with idols. It was ogling foreign gods. And it was flirting at different altars. So we've got the book of Hosea. It's the first of the minor prophets. It tells of God loves, God's love for his people and the response of his bride. And in all this, Hosea's role was to show how the northern kingdom had been unfaithful to God. God chose Jeroboam to rule the northern ten tribes. And he was prepared to establish Jeroboam's bloodline in the same way that he'd promised for David. But Israel turned their back on God. Jeroboam set up two golden calves, instituted pagan priesthood, and got the legacy of the one who made Israel sin. Israel left behind the one who had saved her from the wilderness, <clears throat> the one who loved her, the one who had made her his own. And now Hosea warned that unless people repented of their sin and turned back to God, they were headed for destruction. Now in the story of Hosea, we see that God's relationship with Israel is graphically demonstrated by Hosea's relationship with his wife. Because God told Hosea to find a wife, but telling him beforehand, she would be unfaithful to him. In simple terms, she was a prostitute. I think I can say that after Morris's sermon the other week. I think we're all right with that. Can you imagine that happening today? A prophetic leader goes and marries a prostitute. So, but in obedience, that's what Hosea does. He marries Goma. Her relationship with her, her adultery, their children became a prophetic example to Israel. It's a story of betrayal, a tale of shameless two-timing. It's a story you probably see in the tabloid papers in the red tops or even the Jeremy Cole show 
I was thinking, can you imagine the strap line? I married a prostitute, but I still love her. If you watch the Jeremy Cole show, you'll understand what I mean. But it is a love story. It's real, it's tragic, and it's true. Israel were the covenant people, weren't they? But they shattered that, shattered that covenant. They'd broken the promise and then flaunted the marital vows with the Lord. But more than breaking the law, they were breaking God's heart. A covenant had previously been made by God and he'd been faithful to it. He was love was steadfast. His commitment was unbroken. But Israel, like Gomer, was adulterous and unfaithful, turning to false gods. See, these people were greedy and adopted immoral behaviour in idolatrous religion. We read at the start of chapter 2, which is headed, we read about that, sorry, at the start of chapter 2, and that's headed Israel, punished and restored. So the first thing we can learn from Hosea is God wants obedience. Because God told Hosea to marry a woman who would be unfaithful, who would go off with other men. And can you imagine how you'd feel if you knew that? He may not have wanted to, but he went ahead and did it. He obeyed. And sometimes God will require extraordinary obedience when, when people are facing extraordinary times. But we don't only learn about obedience, but we can learn about marriage. Because a successful marriage isn't a business of perfect people living, in perfect, in, living perfectly by perfect principles. Marriage is a state in which imperfect people often hurt and often humiliate each other, but find the grace to extend forgiveness to the other and also allow the power of Jesus Christ to transform that relationship. Hosea was also obedient in naming Gomer's children. We read in chapter 1 that Gomer gave birth to three children and God told Hosea to name each of them with, with a name that had a meaning. They represented and defined God's anger and his mercy. They were called Jezreel, which foretold the fall of the royal family, the house of Jehu, the ending of the kingdom of Israel, and it signifies dispersion. Jezreel was a place where King Jehu killed Jezebel. Next child, Lo-Ruhamah, which meant not loved. And thirdly, Lo-Ami, which meant not my people. See, God was showing his reaction to Israel's unfaithfulness and he was giving a warning. But if we pick the story up from chapter 2, verse 13, it says, I will punish her for the day she burnt incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers, but she forgot me, declares the Lord. Baals, it was the, the main Canaanite god, but it was also another word for husbands. So God had been cheated by chosen people. He says, we read, he was to punish Israel. He'd provided them everything. But they then said they'd got it from others, attributed to others. In verse 5, we read, as if Israel speaking, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. But you know what? Despite all that, God didn't give up on Israel. His intention... His, his purpose in all this is reconciliation. First of all, he's got to remove the blessings he's enjoyed as his special people. 
blessings that she'd gone on to attribute to false gods. He says he'll block her in so she can't get to her lovers. He'll take away the plenty of the land. The land will become a wilderness as the people are removed from the place where God's blessing is found and they're taken into exile. But having done that, he then turns, he then begins to act to win them back. And we read in chapter four, sorry, in verse 14. Therefore, I am, going, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Achor the door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. And I think it was those verses when we were away that grabbed my attention. God led them into the wilderness. God must first lead us into a place where we have nothing left of our own. And then we're more likely to turn to him. Remember the, the Israelites had been in the wilderness when they left Egypt. What did they do for food? God gave them manna who provided. He gave them enough to meet their needs and not a surplus. When God leads into the wilderness, he isn't taking away th good things from us. He's taken away the things that we thought were good for us. So that all we have left is what's really good for us. And so we have to depend on him. And the result of being in the wilderness? God speaks kindly. And being in the desert makes us more receptive to God's word. I've said it from the front. Others have said it from the front. It's been said at other times. It feels like God is stripping away everything from Junction 10 until all we have left is our relationship with him. Have we been led back into the wilderness by a loving God, desperate to woo us back as a lover would? Even in the wilderness, he's speaking to us, gently calling us back, a still voice in a howling wind. Has God brought us to a place where we are receptive to his word? And if so, what's he showing us? But we've been faithful, may be your response. We've not pursued other lovers. We've not made false idols out of gold. But has the needle of our compass always been pointed towards God? Or has it been pulled round by other things? We also need to consider that not everyone in Israel was unfaithful but the impact from those that were was felt by everyone. Now, let's be clear, this church has got an amazing story to tell. This church, Junction 10. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of lives have been impacted by the outworking of God through actions, through endeavours coming from this place. And this isn't meant to be critical of anyone who's been part of Junction 10 at any part of our history but maybe we've just lost our way somewhere. I'm not just talking about leaders. This applies to a wider, wider group. You'll see a compass coming up on the screen. Have a look at the labels around it. Have any of those pulled the compass away from, from God, from my magnetic north? Hurt, sin, pride, bitterness, guilt, unforgiveness, idols, insecurity and laziness. Some of those are pretty obvious, aren't they? You'd expect to see there. You know, we all know sin can get in the way and pull us from God. 
But some of them are uh, maybe a little bit more, oh, I, I didn't think about that. For my GCSEs, I performed a song. I've got the cassette somewhere if you really want to hear it. Um, which included the line, it's a subtle breeze that blows you out to sea, but it's not so easy to come home. And it's been suggested that the, the problem with the Israelites' worship of God, that it was too much tied up with the vineyards and the victories. It was too focused on the land flowing with milk and honey. They dismissed what God was offering them. He didn't just want their worship for what he'd done, what he'd given them, what was in front of them. He wanted their worship because he wants intimacy with us. He wanted a personal relationship with people. You see, Satan's good at being at the subtle. The vineyards, the victories, the flowing milk and honey were all good things. They're all good things given by God. But for the Israelites, the focus switched to what they had rather than who provided it. I don't believe anybody intended to become proud around Junction 10, pride at the number of people attending, pride at the quality of the musicianship, the amount of activities birthed and run from Junction 10. But you know, sometimes the praise of man, a complimentary word said in innocence and well intended, could plant a seed, which grows the importance of man's efforts to the detriment of God. These things can start so subtly that we don't even recognise them. And if we've ever felt a sense of achievement, we need to repent. Because even at what we may describe Junction 10 at its best, it was only reaching a fraction of the population of Warsaw. The problem is, we sometimes put ourselves first. Like Goma, we seek after our own interests and, and ignore or distort God in the process. How do we recognise when this is happening? Well, we maybe don't recognise God as a source of life. We pursue things that we like and we think will satisfy. We experience a dryness in our soul because our own methods, which we thought were working, don't actually work. We, pride can set in. We don't recognise sin. We expect God to bless us because we think we deserve it, because we're good. We've made an effort. Therefore, God will bless And we blame God when things don't go just the way we want them to. Are we guilty of this? I was writing this and I thought, this is tough. But I think that we have to realise that maybe we've been unfaithful sometimes. And in doing so, however subtle, we betray God. Maybe we've chased after possessions. Maybe we've chased after popularity. We've put our faith in things other than solely in God. If we do, these attitudes can block God's grace, impede the flow of the Holy Spirit, and it keeps Jesus at arm's length. So what's God's response to this? What is his reaction to Israel forgetting him? Well, after describing their sins and bringing them into the wilderness, the story shows that God is also merciful and he is drawing them back to him. And that takes us on to the second point. 
and what a comfort it is to know that God will always restore. And God is going to win Israel back. He's going to take her back to the place where their love was first discovered, back to the wilderness. The idea is going to take her back to the place where they enjoyed a brief honeymoon after the exodus from Egypt, a short period of youthful enthusiasm for their newfound love, to the desert where their relationship was cemented, and again, he'll offer her a promised land if she'll commit herself to him once more. And God uses these wilderness experiences to bring us closer to him. See, chapter 15, <clears throat> sorry, verse 15 refers to the Valley of Achor, which means trouble. It was a place where Achan's disobedience and taking some of the silver and gold from Jericho had been discovered. It was a scene of Israel's first act of disobedience after they'd entered the promised land. It had been a shameful reminder to the Israelites that now it was going to be renamed. It was going to become a door of hope. God's forgiveness is such that he can transform our failings into a reminder of his grace, of his power to forgive, of his power to rebuild our relationships. You know, some, you might not have thought about your failings as that. It's not nice to think about failings, is it? Maybe we're ashamed or embarrassed by them. But if we live by grace, if we live by the grace of God, once repented, those failings actually serve to remind us of the hope of the gospel. The certain hope that no sin is too great for God to forgive. And that's where it would be for the people of Israel. The valley of trouble would become a gateway of hope. And this verse also says that Israel will sing a song like she did in her youth. In Exodus 15, 1-19, the song of Moses and Miriam. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The song is totally about God. The song they would sing and the song that we need to sing, the life we need to live is one that is focused entirely on God. One that leads to forgetting ourselves. That's a definition of worship. When we forget about ourselves, when we focus on God, that's when we can worship. And we read on in Hosea from verse 16. In that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky. And the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land, so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, and the new wine, and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant it for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Verse 16 says that they will call God husband and not owner or slave master. How big a picture could you get of God renewing that intimate relationship with us that he once had? can know that God loves us perfectly 
He accepts us the way we are and we can be secure and depend on him. The solution to all our troubles is a relationship with him. It's a picture of paradise, isn't it? And it's a picture of everlasting life in God's presence. But notice how he repeats that phrase, I will take you for my wife, or I will betroth you. He says it three times. Or if I say, as if God's saying, this is the heart of the matter. This is the thing that I long for. There's a sense of eagerness, a sense of desire and longing in the way that he repeats himself. It's not a case of grudgingly taking her back, taking his wife back. It's not a case of, well, I know what she's done and it hurts, but I'm going to take her back. This is the words of somebody who's starting afresh. It's the start of a new life, of a new relationship. And as a Christian, this is good news. Because it tells me that although as a Christian, I still sin, God is patiently waiting for me, for me to renew my relationship with him. Something we need to do daily, but he's waiting. Because God's love is always corrective, not condemning. It unbinds from sin. It doesn't wrap us up in judgment. At the start of Isaiah, what we read, God's words are angry. But as we go through, they're outweighed by affirmations of love, tenderness, affection, and mercy triumphs over judgment. God will lead us to a quiet spot and woo us. As he did Israel. She turned to God. She saw the aching, the longing, the passion in his eyes. And she received the promised land as a gift. The third point is he'll transform us into his righteousness. time will come when God will bind himself bind us to himself in perfect justice love and faithfulness through nothing we've done of our own God forgives us any time we drift away if we ask he always leaves the light on and he always takes us back with open arms there's no way for us to reach the standards that he sets by our own effort but he accepts us and he raises us up to that. And he forgives us because that's the relationship we need. And it's not only with God, but with his son, Jesus, whose love is unconditional, who brought us back. But we have to accept his terms if we are to be his people. And through this, the result will be that we know God, we know the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we, we will see face to face. Now I only know in part, then I will know fully, even as if I have been fully known. 
It's the image, isn't it, of that intimate relationship. The time's coming when we can know God personally and as fully as he knows us. But we, we can get it wrong. Sometimes, you know, we think that God's love is hard and tough and cold, that he's asking for our obedience or else, that his love depends on how we relate to him. Well, we've seen, he expects us to be faithful, but his love is never forced on anyone. And if we choose to turn away, he'll let us. The light can go on, but people prefer the darkness, and they'll stay in the darkness. But if that happens, he'll still send messengers to those who've turned away. He may remove some of the blessings they've taken for granted to stir them to look back to him. He may send you, he may send me to invite someone to discover him for themselves, to see the great love he's poured out on everyone. Because God's love is a powerful love. It's a love that reaches out even when we're unfaithful. It's a love that pays the cost to win us back. If you want the fullness of it, you've got to take it up when it's offered. So that's sure we've accepted that we've committed ourselves to being faithful to God and that we're showing others who need to hear about it and experience it for themselves because God wipes the slate clean there's no retribution there's no accounting for past sins or everything is made new all that we have to do you say yes, accept, accept the marriage offer. If you notice the description of the betrothal, it's almost as though God is listening. The betrothal gifts he'll, he'll show her on his bride. I will take for you my wife in righteousness. Sorry, I'll take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy, I will take you for my wife in faithfulness because not only will he forget failings he'll give us things that we haven't got righteousness justice love mercy faithfulness it's a marriage that will last because God will provide exactly what's needed for it to last so is he a God of justice yes he is and he punishes sin but he's a God of love absolute love and how does he reconcile that? How do we get past that? We turn to Jesus. Jesus, the bridegroom of the church. Was Palm Sunday an engagement party? Only for the bride then to get cold feet? A bride, a church that's failed him like Gomer failed him, that Gomer failed Hosea, and Israel failed God. But Jesus died for his bride. He gave his body, he shed his blood on the cross so that we would live. And why did he do it? Love. 
I love that Hosea showed his wife, even though she cheated on him, even though she went off with other men, had children with other men. That's love. God saw through the imperfections. He sees through our imperfections. He sees us as he created us, which is perfect. that's where he sees he sees us as perfect you might look at me and think that's pretty good eyesight and it is but he sees us as perfect it's a love that releases captives it's a love that calls prodigal sons and daughters home it's a love that releases joy God says to Israel, from now on, you will call me my husband rather than my bow. But what does Jesus say to his disciples? In John 15, we read that he says, I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. See, Jesus in himself incorporates the love of God. And I've heard this morning a love that deserves our faithfulness but won't force it. A love that's looking for an equal, a wife or a friend, not a slave or servant. Last time I spoke, I put a junction 10, all we have, all we have ever had. And forgive us if we place our trust in other things. All we have ever had is Jesus. And all we are required to do is trust him and allow him to make us more like him because all of him is more than enough. As I said, when we, re- when we were away, this verse spoke to me and, sorry, this chapter spoke to me and looking back at what I spoke about in January, I can see God's leading me in, in stuff that's going on here. But it, as we bring this to a conclusion, 10 things to notice about this process of redemption. First thing is, Gomer and the Israelites turned away from God to go after their own desires. And people will. People will turn away from God and go after their own desires. But there is no satisfaction in all that wandering. I could have put the story of the prodigal son up easily. God chastises those that he loves in Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 6. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Number four, that even in complete rejection, God's love never fails. In Romans 8, 38... For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God engineered the circumstances to prepare the way for a relationship. And only through trouble is there hope of restoration. God forgets the past and he wants to enter a new relationship. The response to God's faithfulness has to be repentance. 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scriptures say, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. God responds to a prayer of faith and then God restores the humble and begins to grow them once again. So more than anything, we need to be restored, repaired, redone, made anew. And that can only happen because Jesus went to the cross. And it can only happen through Jesus Christ. And if my people who are called by my name and humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive and heal their land. I pray that, as I shared that this morning, that something's landed, that something is in there has maybe stirred something. We're going to sing our final song. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply cry. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Because it is all about you, Jesus.